Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Hi, my name is Charlie, and I'm an alcoholic. And uh, <laughs> there really is nothing nice to say. Um, I'm sure. I want to thank my friend Julie for asking me to uh, come to the West Omaha group uh, and participate here. I'm, uh, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. It's such a relief to say. I have four friends here who are um, they're, they're earthquake victims looking for a home. And uh, it's so nice to see them. I can't tell you. Um, I, and my, I want to thank my hosts, um, Judith and Chris, for picking me up at the airport this morning and uh, experiencing power failure inside their car and not being able to get the windows down or the air conditioning on on the way to the hotel, which was a uh, real, it was more fun watching them squirm than it was. It didn't, it didn't make me uncomfortable. It was just kind of interesting to get a taste of Scottsdale in the summer. And um, <laughs> for that, I'm, I'm grateful. Um, it's nice to see new people who are enthusiastic about Alcoholics Anonymous and who are uh, willing to come get some goof at the airport that they don't even know and to take them to a meeting so they can listen to something that they may not even want to hear. And uh, I, I know how I was when I was new, and no one would have gotten into my car at the airport, I'll tell you that. Uh, I was uh, wide-eyed and bushy-tailed when I was new, and uh, my friend Sandy, who was uh, <laughs> one of my compatriots, we uh, sat together, he, he gets sober about the, almost the same day I am, and we sat at this meeting together, and glanced at each other thinking, we both got to get the hell out of here. We don't belong here. He just gotten here out of prison and I just gotten here out of a bookstore. And, uh, <laughs> and we both understood exactly why each of us wanted to leave, too. And, uh, <laughs> um, I'm just killing time because I really have no story. And <laughs> the story that I do have is perhaps the most tedious thing you've ever heard in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's really... Uh, will make Thorazine obsolete, and uh, I'm, I'm in Alcoholics Anonymous because I'm, I'm a drunk, and uh, I don't have any control over that. I don't have any blame to place on it. I've, I've searched, believe me, and uh, I don't have, uh, I wasn't turned around on the toilet the wrong way when I was a child. That had nothing to do with my drinking, uh, although I did turn, turn around the wrong way in the course of my drinking, but um, that's... Uh, what the hell am I talking? I don't know where the hell I am. I really am. Uh, it's not... I would I guess, guess I ought to start like the format says and tell what it used to be like, what happened, and what it's like now. I try to find some thematic center and work around it, but it doesn't usually work because I'm not that deep. Uh, I, was, I was born in uh, Southern California. I've lived there all my life. I was born in Glendale. Uh, the only child of uh, my father, who was a carpenter, and my mother, who was a humble virgin woman. And uh, <laughs> I remember feeling, from the time that uh, I was a child, remember feeling alienated and weird and goofy and uh, ugly and all those things, and never wanting anybody to, to find out that I felt that way, certainly, because those are the days where you really 
Uh, I was raised in a period where you just didn't talk about the way you felt. You didn't talk about your emotions. Sometimes I, I long for those days. Um, but, you know, you've been to enough meetings where you just want to say, shut up. No one gives a damn, really. Let's take a, let's take a straw vote. How many of you give a damn about his problem? And there won't, there'll be two or three hands. Uh, I, I didn't have any problems when I was a kid other than the ones I brought on myself. I, my parents didn't have a lot of money, and we, but I had the benefit of, of uh, they really screwed me out of a miserable childhood. I, they did everything they could for me, you know, they tried really hard. It was almost like they were standing around waiting for me to respond in some way. They, uh, I was, I was burdened with potential from the get-go, and, and uh, I was, I had teachers and, and counselors, and everybody in the world would tell my parents, you know, Charles has lots of potential, we just wish he would do something with it. And my reaction was, I know I've got potential, and you know I've got it. Let's just leave it at that, huh? <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't perform on command. Thanks. I'm not your toy pup. I'm not gonna jump through a hoop for you. Do you mind? When I'm goddamn good and ready, I'll do something. But I just am not ready yet. All right? I didn't say it in so many words. I said something like, "I'll try harder." But I was still <laughs> defiant inside. I'm, I'm like. Uh, I like to think of myself as California's best-kept secret, you know, the really angry rebel who never said anything. Uh, I just couldn't tell anybody. I, I, I didn't like most of my teachers. I uh, felt alienated in class. I knew all the other kids were smarter and had it easier than I did. I knew that they all understood each other. I grew, at a very young age, I, I developed the ability to listen to the implied content of people's <laughs> statements at the same moment demanding that you take me at face value. You know, how dare you question what I say? But I'm sitting there taking your thermo your temperature while I'm listening to what you're saying. And I've always read into everything. I've always tried to find the deeper, no, well, not the deeper meaning, because that would involve some kind of sacrifice. I, I like to just manipulate what people are saying to fit me. I like to tailor situations to make me comfortable. And I'm absolutely self-centered in that respect and absolutely uh, powerless to deal with it. Uh, when I get afraid, especially, and I had teachers that I just detested. They were doing what they were supposed to be doing. They were trying to teach me something. Oh. And I didn't like that because that means surrendering a little bit. And I didn't want to hear it. You know, I thought I could do it on my own. I've always been one of those people who can do it on his own. I don't need your insipid help. Thanks. <laughs> but get out of my face. And I had a, I was put in advanced, uh, I got in this hideous uh, program for, for kids who did well on SAT, well, I did uh, not an SAT, but those, those standardized tests, and that uh, won't get you girls. I got news for you there, but um, <laughs> it's not like lettering and something, you know. I just uh, I great scores, uh, and I wound up in this advanced class, and I had this teacher who was, you know, we, we assumed we, we had rumors going that she was a communist, and uh, I was living in Anaheim, California at the time, which is sort of the hotbed of uh, the John Birch Society, and. Uh, <laughs> My dad was the only Democrat in Anaheim, too, and I felt alienated there. And, uh, you know, I hated this. I just felt, I felt nothing but anger and hatred all my life. Just, and I didn't want to feel that way because I'm not a hateful person by nature. I can't sustain hatred that long. I can't sustain it sincerely. I hate out of fear. That's my only reaction that I'm comfortable with is anger at, when I get afraid. And I wanted to cut this teacher's throat, you know, because she was always challenging me to do something. And I just wanted to slit her throat, but it's very difficult to reach up and slit somebody's throat when you're busy kissing their ass. And uh, <laughs> that's another uh, that's another contradiction I've always had to deal with, you know. I, uh, 
I hear people talk about having this Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde kind of mentality when they drink. I'm like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Rogers when I drink. <laughs> and I, I just could not get any relief from the way I felt. I felt sad and I felt lonely and alienated. And I hadn't touched a drink yet. But I tell you this not because I, I need because I'm dancing around up here, but I I have to remember what it is I feel like naturally. That is what I feel like at untreated at any given time is fearful and as the book describes restless, irritable, discontent, just for starters. We can start filling in the shadings all around that, you know, but but those are the basics, how I feel. I grind inside. I feel like I'm grinding all the time. I can't quite get comfortable around people and when I'm alone, I'm lonely because I want to do great things and I am incapable of it because I'm a turd. <laughs> that the rest of the world revolves around. And I'm constantly at that, with that, that dichotomy going, I'm always in conflict. And I don't suppose that's unlike anybody who's a teen, anybody who's ever been a teenager has felt that way. You can go out on the street right now and pick any teenager going down the street and ask them, do you ever feel alienated, lonely, and desperate? And they'll tell you, sure. All of us, everybody did. Everybody's felt that way. You can find adults on the street who feel restless, irritable, and discontented. You can find adults who feel angry and hostile and frightened and nervous and uncomfortable around people. That is not an uncommon human emotion. I don't think there's anything different about alcoholics. But the thing that I discovered when I was 18 years old and I just uh, catapulted out of high school into the music industry as a, a clerk in a record store, and I, I, got, I went to a party and got my first taste of alcohol. And when I took a drink, everything changed. Everything changed. And I didn't realize until I got here that that's not the way it works for 90% of the human race. Most people drink and they get, like my ex-wife, they get silly. They feel like they need to somehow slow down because they're losing control. I only start gaining some sense of control in my life <laughs> with a few ounces of alcohol, and that is untypical of human beings' reaction to alcohol. I didn't know that at the time. You, that's the, the great tragedy, I think, of alcoholism, is that... If anybody else out there understood how it makes an alcoholic feel to drink, they would be able to deal with it better. But the only people who understand how it makes us feel is us. And the only people I'm drinking with in the bars are people just like me. And no one's in there going to say, you know, Charles, you may have a problem with alcohol. It makes you feel too good. Because they're all... <laughs> First of all, no one's thinking of me anyway in there. <laughs> And secondly, everybody else who's in the bars I drank in, like the Humdinger in Anaheim and uh, uh, the Shimmy Shack and the Crystal Pistol, uh, were, were just like I am, you know? They're, they're drinking in the bar and they're going out and doing whatever they do out in the, out in the parking lot and coming back in and drinking some more, you know? And, and uh, so, you know, some of them are subsidizing their alcohol with other chemicals, and, and, uh, but they're alcoholics, you know? They're alcoholics. And alcohol relieves me. Alcohol, I'll tell you, I drank for 13 years, and uh, alcohol, I don't recall one time, maybe one time, drinking to get drunk. I thought about that because I take an inventory. So I don't recall ever just going out to get good and drunk tonight. I'm going to get drunk. I'm not going to get drunk. I want to get there. I want to get, and you know where it is. It's spelled with a capital T, and you go there when you're an alcoholic, where nothing can hurt me, and nothing can, I can, I can breathe deeply, as my friend Clint says, uh, take a deep breath for the first time, and feel not like 
it's everything is okay, but like everything is going to be okay soon. <laughs> you know, it's, when I drink, when I drink, it's the only time in my life that there's hope in the air. You know, you can just, you can just smell it. You can just feel it. Like Jesus, I feel. I'm just about ready to break free. I know that a few more drinks and I'm going to be beyond there. I'm going to be really, literally fulfilling my potential as I sit here. My potential, alcohol gave me the, alcohol gave me the satisfaction of a job well done without ever doing a goddamn thing. I don't know any group of people who understand that feeling except you. Other people don't get it. Well-meaning people all my life have told me, I know how you must feel. But they don't. They don't because I have to try to explain it to them. And I'm one of those explainers. And when I try to explain it, they just back up. You know, I came to AA and I try to explain it and everybody laughs. I'm thinking, this is not funny. This is life and death stuff and everybody's laughing even louder. You know, I, 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 my most humiliating moments when I finally shared them with my sponsor, he just busted up. And I, I thought that was really insensitive. I thought, oh yeah, you can, you can afford to be cocky about it because it wasn't you. And he would say things like, think about what you just said. Waking up in your mom's nightgown? <laughs> That's not funny. I don't recall coming out of that blackout standing there in my mother's nightgown going, will you look at this? She wasn't home then, luckily, or she might, I might have been in there with her. I don't know. Oh, yeah, judge now, yeah. yeah. You can get drunk and ruin your life and wake up in your mother's nightgown. Let's not talk about that other stuff. You know, oh, no, wait a minute. I got a line I got to draw. <laughs> Alcoholics, you can still find a line in the sand. You know, I never did that. <laughs> you will. <laughs> I bet there's other stuff you did that you just are, I bet you new people are afraid to tell right now. It's all right. Stick around. We'll get it out of you. And, uh, and we'll all react just like we're laughing right now. I mean, nobody, nobody's judging. Everybody's going, damn, I, I, I never did a nightgown, but I've, uh, I, I've awakened with, with stuffed toys uh, or whatever it is your problem is uh, or wherever your actions take. Yeah, it wasn't a problem. It just was, I was cold that night. You know, I, I'll do any. I remember I've awakened out of, out of drunken stupors with a, with a dish towel over my shoulder lying next to a full bed of covers and things because I just could not... Could not get up off the floor to get onto the bed, and just have you ever tried? You can, only alcoholics can get under a dish towel. You kind of curl up and get under it, and that's acceptable. That's acceptable. It's acceptable to be sitting in the humdinger, you know, uh, looking good, sitting there. I, I look basically like I do now, maybe a little spottier, but. Uh, sitting there in the, in the humdinger looking at myself in the back bar mirror saying, maybe someday. Uh, but as, as anybody knows, you know, I, I lived for the surprise of alcohol. I lived for that moment of surprise where I got there. And I, I drank every drink I ever took after the first drink I took 
to try to find that place where I just felt all right. I just felt safe. I felt comfortable. I felt even with everybody else. I felt optimistic about things. And when I, when I drank, the most important thing I remember about it was it made me feel comfortable around you because I've never been comfortable around people. My feeling has always been that the human race would be a much better place without humans. <laughs> just, just like those, in, like Scottsdale, the Indian population in there, mannequins. I realize I'm driving, walking through there, thinking, God, look at all the Indians sitting on the curb, and they're all mannequins. Uh, that's how I thought. God, wouldn't it be great if the whole human population could be like that? You're just walking through the street, and they're just standing there. They're not bugging you. They're not looking at you funny. They're not judging you, and you don't have to humiliate yourself in front of them because they don't care. And um, I, I drank uh, alcoholically from the very beginning. And yet, the longer I drank, the less able was I to find there. And eventually, I couldn't find it except for just a couple of seconds. That real, that real frustrating cheat of alcohol when I, I'm near the end. By, by the time I stopped drinking, I was urinating blood. I was going to the hospital, uh, the emergency room, to get my stomach checked, you know, because I was under a lot of stress. And uh, <laughs> they'd give me Valium, which I, I took willingly, but I didn't like it, but I took it. You know, I don't know what you call that. Maybe addiction. I don't know. It's, it's. Uh, I just took it. I think I just took it to be polite. And um, I did. I did. I have my drug story. I mean, I don't know. I don't know many alcoholics who do not have some drug experience. You know, I've taken. Uh, I, I smoke marijuana. I think marijuana is a stupid drug. I didn't. I didn't want to get loaded. You know, I thought it was. I'd sit there listening to a Steely Dan album for about 11 hours, just kind of. <laughs> Wearing the grooves white, and then, then I wind up at three in the morning eating a jar of mayonnaise in the kitchen. <laughs> See, that that was not what my sta my standards were. I wanted to be I wanted to be classy. I wanted to be hip. I wanted to be John Lennon and Errol Flynn and all that stuff. It's kind of hard to pull that off when you look like like Sherman from those Peabody cartoons. But I wanted that. You know, inside I felt that way. I felt like it was possible. You know, but I, it didn't work with with. I took I took speed for a little while and. Uh, Dislike that sensation of my eyes trying to precede me into the next room, you know. Uh, I was a, for, a, for a short period a PCP smoker, which is, again, uh, a guy like me doesn't do PCP well either. I don't, I'm not into hallucinations. I'm an alcoholic. I don't need to induce psychosis. You know what I mean? You just tell me that that last drink I had is the only one I can get, and you're going to see somebody get real strange really fast. <laughs> oh, I'm not a knockabout person. I, don't, I won't set the place on fire and, you know, yell, you're not going to take me alive, screws, like some of you people. Uh, I just couldn't carry it out. I'm one of those alcoholics. So I just stand there and, and just button it up and stand there and rock on my heels, you know, and, and think about where I can get a weapon. And, and think about think about how it's going to be when I finally get the courage to show you just what kind of a guy I am. Other people in AA go out and do that. I can't help it. We're the same alcoholic. We just don't do it the same way. Uh, the actions are different. The disease is exactly the same. And so are the emotions. So are the reasons. Every guy that's ever spent a day in prison, I, when I've heard a guy, I was ta talking about this Monday. I'm sorry, my friends who... I spoke last Monday at my home group and my Monday night meeting, and they've heard this all before. But uh, uh, one of the people I identified most with when I came to AA was a guy who spent 19 years in prison. A hard time. And when he spoke, I was sitting there thinking, yeah, yeah, prison, strong-arm robbery, da, 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 da. I didn't do all that. I didn't do it. I didn't do that. And yet when he talked about it, I understood exactly what he meant. I understood his alcoholism exactly because 
why he drank was the same reason I drank. I need relief from whatever it is that is my alcoholism, that grinding, hostile, restless feeling. I drink, and that relieves it for however short a time. It, I just know that the relief is going to be there. I didn't get relief from other things. Uh, taking drugs got me high. I didn't want to be high. I want to be there. There. Looking for her. <laughs> We're big pronoun people in this fellowship. We love pronouns. Her, as we all know, is spelled with a capital H. You know, I, and I, I would seek that out when I seek her out when I went out drinking. Couldn't find her. It didn't matter. You know, I'd get to a bar and I'd be looking for her, and then I'd take a couple of shots of Jack Daniels, and I get there. And once you're there, who the hell needs her? That's the kind of that's the kind of condition that drives Al-Anon's crazy. They just can't make the jump. With us, it's fine. I mean, we make that that logical jump is perfect for us. Who, you know, that's understandable. And. I was just sick, you know. I just started getting physically sick and farther and farther off center, and and I didn't have anything, to, anyone or anything to blame, you know. By this time, I vaulted into a job in publishing because I wanted to be a writer, and uh, I had trouble making the the uh, step between wanting to be thought of as a writer and actually writing something. Uh, <laughs> I had a tweed jacket though, and. Uh, <laughs> Oxford shirt, I could go out and go to any bar and pass as a writer. I wasn't stupid enough to say I'm a musician. Somebody might be in there with a piano, you know. Why don't you play that for us? I couldn't do it. So I, nobody ever says, write something. <laughs> so I just tell them I'm a writer. You know, I sit there and drink and try to act, act tortured, you know, that, that, as, as all writers are. I wanted to be like Dylan Thomas. I wanted to feel that. I wanted to feel your pain. I wanted to feel. I don't want to get loaded. I want to live. I don't want to be anesthetized against life. Alcohol gave me passion. When I was sober is when I felt closed off from everybody and shut down. And I couldn't let anybody close to me. When I drank, I felt such relief. And I felt like, you know, now I'm going to do it. Now I'm going to live. Now I'm going to charge into life. I'm going to rip through life so fast it's going to just peel the first two layers of skin off and leave the raw nerve endings on the surface. I'm going to live that life. I'm going to take the grapes of life and crush them against the roof of my mouth and suck that juice down. I'm going to live. I'm going to tear through it. I'm going to burn. I'm going to write down all my pain and all my frustration and all my anger. I'm going to write all that passion down for you. I'm going to do that. I'm going to write it all down. I'm going to live it and love it and screw it and jump it and write it down and live and just fly off into the stratosphere and then explode at the peak of my powers and just shower the world with stars. And I'm going to start tomorrow. <laughs> and that's the old... Uh, I, I remember reading Langston Hughes' The Dream Deferred when I was in high school, and I understood exactly what he was talking about. What happens when you just keep deferring your dreams? And I just deferred my entire life to drink. That's all I felt comfortable with. And the terror was there all the time. I knew I couldn't do anything, so I would drink and feel like maybe soon I would be able to do something. And as we all know, eventually I couldn't even make up those moments in my head to feel like I was going to do something. It just wasn't happening at all, at all. 
I was just getting sicker and lonelier and emptier. And I was married to a beautiful woman who was not alcoholic, and I blew her off. And after five years of putting her through what any non-alcoholic experiences with an alcoholic, there is just no inlet into finding out what is making them tick. What is bothering you? And I can't tell you what's bothering me because I don't know what's bothering me. All I know is that all I ask you to do is get off my goddamn back, let me have a few drinks, and just give me some peace. That isn't too much, is it? You know, well, apparently it was because she left. And, uh, and, and I don't blame her, you know. There are a lot of ways to abuse women, and, and uh, only one of them is with your fists. You can do a lot of damage with words. You can cut somebody a new one with words, and those don't ever go away. Those echo for a long time. And uh, you can, if you're like me, when you're in fear, you can subtly undercut somebody's self-worth and just drive them right into a frenzy. And we are masters at that. We're masters at finding out that little niche in somebody else's personality when we're afraid and just shooting a wedge into it and cracking it right open. Just get in there and hurt them. And then feel, then feel absolute shame afterward. And, and, and degradation and, and humiliation later on. Why did I do that? Why do I do that? That is not the kind of person I want to be. I don't want to be that way. I don't know what gets into me. That's how I felt on the 11th of June of 1981. I don't know what gets into me. I don't understand what's happening. I tried going to therapy. Therapy's great as long as you never have to leave the office. <laughs> the trouble with therapy is that they make, she made me leave after 45 minutes after heightened self-examination, you know, that precise, really getting that, that, what do you call those, that magnifying glass right on you, you know, and just, just finding out exactly what's making you, your fear, your inadequacies, all that. Yes, this is what you are. You feel inadequate. You have abandonment issues. You have, that you have all these psychobabble terms that they can tell us about. And I say, yes, yes, that's it. That's what it is. And then I walk out of there and think, I need a drink. Because <laughs> that's how I deal with pain. I drink. That's how I deal with success. I drink. That's how I deal with opportunity. I drink. Because the doing it is so painful because I might fail. But to never do it and drink, ah, I can think, well, if I had done it, I might have done it. But, you know, I'm just too sensitive a guy. And I've had opportunities laid open for me, put in my path. I've had good people pass through my life. I've had good teachers. I've good, had good examples and mentors all pass through my life. I never even looked at them. Just passed right through. Nope, that's not it. No, thanks for your help. Thanks for your input. Bye. I've got my own path to follow until I hit the 11th of June of 1981. And uh, I was sitting in a meditation retreat in Santa Barbara, California, and I was ready to hang myself which is certainly grounds for a refund. Uh, <laughs> just complete, just to step off to one side, just a tangent, I was walking through downtown Scottsdale, the, the, uh, the curio section of Scottsdale today in the old area, and there was a sign on one of the doors there that said, the psychic fair for this weekend has been canceled. You think they would have known. Uh, but there I was. Uh, Sitting at this, I'm sitting in this meditation retreat. See, all that mumbo jumbo and that spiritual stuff is fine for you, but I keep trying it. And all I get is mumbo jumbo and spiritual stuff, but I never get anything that sticks. I never get anything that's real experience. I never get any real hope. I never get anything that I can walk away with. It's always something that is put in front of me that I can look at, but all it becomes after a while is just more information. If Alcoholics Anonymous was just the big book being read at home and studied and then walk out and try to live it, I would be drunk tonight. 
because it's just information until there's someone there to show me how to do it. That's why we have the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, and thank God for it because I get to see how it's done in the way that I do it, and that is clumsily and awkwardly and you know, there are many ways to do this program, and we all do it that way. People tend to hear speakers at podiums and think, God, that guy really knows how to do it. He really does have a handle on it. I have no handle on this program. I'm an alcoholic. I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, but I don't know authority on alcoholism. I know how I've screwed up doing this program in the last 12 and a half years. I know where I've had some success later on after having done something that I didn't want to do. But we're all so, so fallible and such a mess, and that's why we love each other. Because if losers like us can do it, my God, you know, uh, we're, we are holding each other up and walking through this. And I didn't understand any of that when I got dragged to my first AA meeting. I got brought there by my sister-in-law. She thought I was having trouble because I was ready to commit suicide. I didn't even have the courage to do that. You know, that's a, that's a commitment, that's for sure. And uh, I, uh, she brought me to my first AA meeting, and it was a Sunday night. And there were about 200 people in the room. And... I walked in and took a look around. I was here, it was the middle of a heat wave in 1981 in June. I'm in my tweed jacket, my sweater vest, sunglasses, deerstalker hat, shoulder length hair and mustache, standing off in the corner thinking, boy, is this a loserama. You know, these people really are. I'd quit if I were them. You know, I remember sitting next to Sandy at one meeting, looking over, and he's looking at me. We're both thinking, these people are all losers, aren't they? And we were, and they were, really. I didn't know they were happy. Uh, I sensed that they they seemed to be playing some charade with each other about everything's fine and gee, how you doing and da 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 da, sticking their hand out saying, "Hi, are you new?" And my reaction was just one of horror. You know, no, I'm not new. <laughs> I haven't had a drink for four days. I don't need this. Certainly, uh, clearly, I quit drinking. I'm vibrating a little, but I'm fine. Uh, I'm still. Uh, I'm still going home and just sit, you know, I, I didn't know whether to cry or wind my watch for the first week of my sobriety. I, I stopped at stores on the way home and bought popsicles and would go home and eat boxes of popsicles and sit out on the, I was, I was saying to Judith when we were in the other, in the other room over there, that there's the newcomer machine, that big machine full of candy. When you're new, you've got to have that. I mean, people are sucking down M&Ms like, uh, you just got to have that sugar. You've got to have the stuff. I didn't know that. I just needed popsicles. <laughs> Because I'd had that moment of clarity where I realized there was something wrong with me and I could not drink. And I felt the lowest I had ever felt in my entire life at that meditation retreat in Santa Barbara. And the moment that I felt as low as I did, I felt at that same second absolutely unqualifiedly loved. At a split second. I don't remember how that happened. I just remember feeling so despairing and wanting to die, and at that moment feeling, you're all the things that you fear, but I still love you. And I don't know where that came from. It wasn't me. You know, it wasn't me saying that. I didn't love me. I didn't love anything. I didn't want to have anything to do with anything, and yet I wanted to love something. And I think that's what's common with alcoholics. We build up such walls, because we're such goobers. You know, uh, Matt J. says that. We're all goobers at heart, you know, and we, we just want to... We want to love something so badly, but we're so self-obsessed about what, our, what it's going to mean to us that we just don't do it at all. You've got to be too vulnerable to love something. You've got to open up too much to love something. You've got to give of yourself to love something. And if I give of myself, what if I get rejected? I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. And yet, when we get driven to the wall, as alcoholics do, between knowing that if we drink again, we're going to die, and if we don't drink again, we're going to be crazy, that we have to take some drastic action. And 
And it says in the big book, you know, that uh, I'm paraphrasing here because I can't quote the big book. I don't have uh, that kind of mind anymore. But uh, I taught English for seven years, and I, I sober, and I still can't. I couldn't. I can't recite a Shakespearean sonnet. And I taught English literature for seven years. My mind, my memory is gone. But I, I know in the big book it says that that sometimes the choice between an alcoholic death and living a life according to spiritual principles is a hard decision to make for an alcoholic. You can either die that hideous alcoholic death. With, with all the attendant misery that goes along with it, the esophageal lesions, sleeping in the gutter, having renal failure, all that crap, or you can make a choice to live life along spiritual principles and survive. And my reaction is, well, <laughs> I, I don't know. I, and I, I assume that's what your reaction is, too. I've never done anything sincerely in Alcoholics Anonymous, but sincerity is not a prerequisite for sobriety. If you think that you have to be sincere to do something, you're probably going to drink again. You know, I have to. I had to do things in AA that I did not want to do. The first thing being raise my hand, and I hated that. Oh God, I hated. Identify yourself and your disease, which it seemed to stand out. And I, you know, Jesus, I don't want to. I don't have a disease. I just feel bad. You know, it's not a disease. And I had some well-meaning goof uh, come up to me and say. It is so disease. The AMA says it's a disease. I thought, yeah, really. <laughs> I, I didn't do that. I just I said something like, really? And I, I um, <laughs> but I felt that. You know, all my life I felt like just walking up and having teachers say, I want you to do your homework tonight. Yeah, we just want you to take this and sit on it, huh? I never did that. I just said, okay, uh, whatever you like. Uh, find me a weapon. I, I need something. <laughs> and, uh, I, I went home from that first meeting that I went to. Uh, not convinced I was an alcoholic and not convinced that they had anything there for me, but I was, I'll tell you what I felt when I was new in Alcoholics Anonymous from the very first meeting, and that is a direct result of the traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous, and that is that I felt safe right in here, right between any two of you, and that is what I take to every meeting I go to. I've never been to Scottsdale, Arizona in my life, and when I got here and I got in the car with Judith and Chris, I felt safe because I knew I was in the car Granted, they're newcomers, but I knew I was safe <laughs> and hot, but I was safe in there, you know, because I knew that we understood each other, and that is the absolute connection. There is no such thing as difference in Alcoholics Anonymous. We are united here in the common purpose of helping relieve each other and ourselves on a daily basis of alcoholism, period. That's our primary purpose, is to share the message that if you've got a day sober, you have an obligation to tell the person who has an hour sober how you stayed sober for a day. And that goes on for no matter how long you're sober, because I don't care how long I'm sober, I'm that far from a drink. I'm at I'm arm's length from a drink at any given time. And I did not want to stay in Alcoholics Anonymous, but because I got a sponsor, and through a circuitous route, I got a sponsor uh, in the home group that I'm in now, and wound up becoming active in that group, which is where I met Julie. And, and uh, it is an activist group, not because people want to impose their will on me necessarily, but because if you want to have some comfort in your life as an alcoholic, and I say this from experience, that I have to find some consistency in my life. And I don't like consistency unless I choose it. I don't like change unless it's my idea. 
I don't like being told I have to show up for a meeting and set up chairs. But when I do show up for a meeting and set up chairs, against my better judgment, mind you, because I'm, I'm 30 years old when I get so when I got sober, I was 30 years old, and I, I thought, uh, this isn't it. Setting up chairs isn't going to keep me sober. And guess what? Setting up chairs will keep you sober for that night. That's all you got to worry about. And I got a commitment at a meeting so that I had to continue to come back to the meeting. I had to come back to the meeting. Because they told me that a commitment was like a job, and you and people are counting on you to be here. It's not like AA needs you, although we do need newcomers. But you need Alcoholics Anonymous far more than it needs you. If you're not in that seat, there's going to be somebody else in that seat. This meeting will never be empty as long as there are alcoholics trying to get sober. If you decide to leave, your seat will be filled. But I had to claim my seat, and I didn't feel comfortable coming to your meetings until I started setting up your chairs. Then it became my meeting. <laughs> because I realized that because you started moving the chairs. <laughs> Just leave the goddamn chairs where they are. <laughs> Seems to me if I'd wanted them moved over there, I would have moved them there. But you see, I got here an hour early because I set up the chairs. <laughs> so I come back the next week to make sure the chairs are set up right again. Because <laughs> they're my chairs. My meeting. And that may seem like a defective character to some people, or some people may call it even a control freak. <laughs> but the big book says that your worst defects of character will become your strong points later on. The worst things that you have done will become a, a, a sense of strength for you in some ways, in some odd way. And through my direction, the direction of my sponsor and through his example, my, I, in my group, sponsors are more examples than they are directors, although they do give direction. But nobody wants to take direction from someone who's not doing it. And my sponsor was at every meeting that I went to. I couldn't quite n skip a meeting because he's always there. He still is. So my sponsor for 12 and a half years. And I heard uh, Johnny H. said, you know, your sponsor, no matter what meeting I go to on the west side, he's always there. I don't know how he does it. He's at every meeting on the west side. <laughs> and I know that the people who are friends of mine, who are my peers in Alcoholics Anonymous, are people who I've grown close to over the years, like Chris and Joby and, and, and Stephanie and Sandy, that, that, you know, they are in, we're all in the same pool together. And that's a pool of action. That I can stand and talk about spirituality forever. But it means nothing if I'm not willing to put the blinker on in my car to make a lane change. You know what I mean? Spirituality is not theoretical in AA. Spirituality is not God talk. Spirituality in Alcoholics Anonymous, it's much more spiritual for me to show up where I say I'm going to be on time than it is to get up here and talk to you about God for 20 minutes. It's more spiritual for me to clean out the lint, the lint thing in the dryer at the laundromat, even though I may not approve of the person who's using it after me. But when I'm done with it, I clean out. That's just one of those things. There are a lot of things that I like to do that I just do whether I'm in a hurry or not. I clean it out because somebody else might be using it. It makes me feel better. It's not do-gooderism. It's just something that makes me know that I've done something for somebody that, that I don't care who, who gets it after me. It's far more, if I can't sit through a meeting for 45 minutes and be quiet and pay attention to what's going on at the podium, I don't have a spiritual life. You know, our, the, the traditions have been more important to my sobriety in many ways than the steps are because the traditions gave me a framework in which I could work the steps. And the first tradition for you know, my meetings, sometimes, uh, not my meetings, but meetings I've been to in L.A., that um, 
the traditions are read right after the coffee break. Uh, tragically, the people who never hear the first tradition are the ones who need it the most. That our common welfare comes first, and personal recovery depends upon AA unity. Personal recovery comes second to AA unity. I have to be of service to Alcoholics Anonymous, and it is guaranteed in the promises that I will find everything that the program has promised me, as long as I put everything in its place and in its order. If I take the steps, I don't have to work the steps. I've never broken a step, a sweat, working a step, really. I've never broken a sweat praying to God. I've never broken a sweat writing an inventory. It's not work, it's just doing it. It's just doing the steps. I've never broken, oh, I've broken sweats making amends to people, I guess, but uh, <laughs> but I never let them see it. Uh, I, it's an important thing to do the steps on a daily basis, whatever they are. And believe me, as long, the longer you're sober, the more loose you become with the program. And I don't mean loose in a negative sense. The more you just automatically know what you ought to do and when you got to do it or you're going to be uncomfortable. I got a job teaching when I was two and a half years sober. I started teaching at a college. The college where I was unloading books on the receiving dock, I started teaching there. Uh, they needed a, um, an English teacher, and I had a journalism degree, and I was going to grad school at my sponsor's prodding because uh, I kept complaining about this job. I didn't want to be at this bookstore unloading trucks. I, I took it as a stepping stone into my publishing life, and uh, uh, I was there for 12 years. But I, I got this job teaching, and I, I wound up teaching high school the year after. And you talk about having to apply the steps. I mean, being a high school teacher can really be a luge ride into the toilet. Uh, it really is a, sometimes a frightening prospect because you've got so many little individuals, and I don't have any control over all of them. You know, I want to I want to make sure they do it all right, and uh, I can't do that. I have to surrender, and I have to learn how to actively surrender in this program day to day. And believe me, I kick and scream the entire way sometimes. I didn't want to come to Scottsdale this morning. Although I heard this afternoon they had another 4.2 aftershock. I was grateful that I wasn't there for that one. I, uh, although we, we ride those things now. You know. <laughs> See, California, if you get another aftershock, everybody just goes like this. And, uh, <laughs> or just kind of shrugs. <laughs> no problem. Um, I, um, I'm really grateful to be sober. I'm grateful for the life that I've been given. I, I quit teaching a couple of years ago and, and got a job as a writer, which is really weird. And I'm not going to talk about what I write. I'm not going to tell anybody. If you ask me afterwards, I won't tell you. But I just do it for a living. And I, I'm a hack. I get paid for it. And I enjoy it. You know. And I'm, I'm blessed to do that. But you know what? I am not what I do for a living. I'm first and foremost an alcoholic in Alcoholics Anonymous. And then everything else falls in place behind that. And it makes me feel so relieved to know that. You know, the first thing, when the first phone call that I got after that earthquake, and it was a bad earthquake, was from Chris and Joby to find out if I was okay. You know, the first, the phone calls, everybody was calling everybody else because people genuinely care about each other in AA because we understand each other so completely, so without reservation. If you're feeling sorrow, we understand your sorrow. If you are suffering from something in AA, we understand your suffering as nobody else understands it. If you are lonely and alienated in AA, we understand that, and we can show you what to do. There is succor here. There's comfort here. There's a sense of hope in these rooms. If there wasn't, why would 200 alcoholics sit in a smoky room on a Saturday night and listen to this? Really? I went, I'll tell you that, just, I'm going to say this and sit down. I, I went skiing a couple years ago. <laughs> Bad choice for me. I'm not, I'm not Mr. Athlete, and um, some may be disappointed to hear. And um, 
I went skiing with this girlfriend of mine and, and this lovely woman, and we went to, to Vail, Colorado. Enough of my starting at the top, and and uh, I'd never skied in my life. I got on the bunny hill the first day. She's one of those triple black diamond uh, look look God in the eye skiers, you know. I me, I just get up on that bunny hill and squeal on the way down because I I feel completely out of control on two slippery pieces of fiberglass under my feet on a on a vertical descent, and uh, I kept falling down. All day I would fall down. And I'd go to the lodge at lunchtime, and I was exhausted and defeated and angry and frustrated that every time I got on the goddamn skis and started moving, and they started moving, and I'm going, and I'm ripping, and I'm making turns, whoa, and I fall down, you know? And so I told her about it. I was, I was dejected. I was going to pack it in and go home. This is the second year of, of learning how to ski. The first year was worse, but I cracked a rib the first day getting off a lift. And... Um, <laughs> Who says there's no God? And I, uh, I, uh, she said, oh, let me, I'll tell you what, why don't, I go, why don't I ski with you this afternoon, and I'll show you, uh, I'll take a look and see what it is you're doing wrong. I said, okay, fine. So we go out to this other hill, and she says, I'm going to go down to the bottom of the hill, and you ski down, and I'll watch you, and I'll see what it is you're doing wrong. I'm like a little workshop. So I got up there, you know, I'm in like 400 layers of clothing, and I, I start skiing, you know, and I start going, and I'm turning. Make one turn, make the next turn, starts going faster, I fell down. I got up, got on my feet, started skiing, made my first turn, second turn, going faster, fall down again. Finally got to the bottom of the hill after about 19 falls. And I said, what is wrong? I keep falling down. She says, you're sitting down. Excuse me? She says, you're sitting down. You start getting scared because you're moving and you lean back and you fall and you sit down. So you, don't, so you don't go any faster. I said, I'm not sitting down. I lose my balance. I fall down. She goes, no, you don't. You're sitting down. I hate that. I hate being corrected. <laughs> and I said, what should I do then? <laughs> she said, you know how you feel like you're going faster and you're going to fall down? I said, yeah. She said, bend your knees and lean forward. <laughs> yeah, that's an idea. <laughs> That's a good idea, like uh, like when I'm about to go off a cliff and I'm going to spin, gun it. Yeah, that's a, that's a great idea. That really goes along with logic, you know. Lean forward, and she said, and turn your body and face down the hill. Yeah, I'll do that, yeah. She said, until you do, you're going to keep sitting down. I said, falling down. No, she's sitting down. So she then she skied off. She said, if you're not going to do it, why should I stand here and argue with you? She's an Alanon. She can't help it. And she took off. I was pissed, you know. I was angry because there I was abandoned. So I, I, I kept falling down. The rest of the day, I fell down. And the next day, she said, why don't you come skiing with the rest of us or her family? You know, these all these diamond dogs, uh, people with glistening teeth. You know? And I, uh, I said, okay. So we go up and they take me not just up to where I've been getting off, but way up into the Alps. And we're up there. Where, where there are, there's no plant life up there. And, uh, and she says, we're going to ski down this hill right now. And I thought, good. You go ahead. I'm going to take my skis off and walk down because I will not ski down the hill. So they took off. And these snow plows started coming over the hill. And the snow plows are coming. And I thought, God damn it, I'm going to lose them. I don't know where I am. I'm at the top of this mountain. I don't know how to get down. Oh, hell, I jumped, I took off, and I skied, and I started going. I made my first turn, I made my second turn, and oh, I started to fall, I started going faster. I was going to fall down, and I leaned forward and bent my knees, and I stayed up. 
and I made the turn. I came back around and was making another turn. I leaned forward and bent my knees and thought, holy shit. <laughs> and then I kept going, I'm going. I'm thinking, woo, look at this. And then I ate it big time. <laughs> I ate it. I mean to tell you. Maria was down at the bottom of the hill. She took her skis off and ran up the hill. Now, me, I didn't just fall. My glasses, my cap, my gloves, my poles, my skis. I, was, I felt like I was just in there in my underpants, you know, on the hill. Some, some real nitwit skied by and yelled, yard sale, as he went by. And I'm laying there, and I'm, my eyes are burning because it's got snow, and I'm spitting snow, and i got snow in my ears, my hair. I'm laying there, and she's running up the hill, and she's saying, You fell! You fell! It was beautiful. We were all down at the bottom of the hill looking up, and we saw this big cloud of snow. You really fell this time. You were leaning forward, weren't you? I thought, yeah, yeah, I was. I want you new people to know that we are all on the hill with you. We're all on the hill with you. If you want to stay on your feet, when you start getting scared, lean forward. Come to the meeting. Lean forward and don't be afraid to fall down. Because if you fall down, we're still on the hill with you and we're going to run up and pick you up and get you back on your feet again and keep you going. But if you keep leaning back and sitting down, you're never going to go anywhere. You're never going to get anything out of this program. I encourage you new people to stay here. Walk with us. Get to know us. This isn't a cult or some mind wash thing. This is a group of sober alcoholics who do this for fun and for free. We come here to show each other how we fail and how we walk through it. We come here to share and celebrate each other's success. And I encourage you to join us, lean forward, and come along with us. And I thank you, Julie, again for asking me to be here. Thanks. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.